Will you pray with me now? Father, I pray that you would please help us this morning. We want to and we need to be changed. We need to and we want to be more like Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would please use the truth of your word this morning to change us. Lord, speak to us through your word. I pray your Holy Spirit would do his great work of convincing us of the truth, convicting us of our sin, Lord, and converting those who don't yet know you, Father. I want your kingdom to grow. I want your family to expand. And I know that you do as well. Lord, please help each one of us. Each one of us come in here with different concerns at different places. And we ask for your help, Lord, to walk in the truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are going to be in Mark 9. If you're not there already, go ahead and turn there. Mark 9. And um, I've titled the sermon this morning, From Mountain to Valley. Because don't forget where we just came from in last week's text. Last week's text was the Mount of Transfiguration. And we start our message this morning. You might recall the first text, that, the first uh, verse that he just read said, as they were coming down the mountain. So they're coming down from that mountaintop down into a valley. We're going to see next week that uh, there's no rest for them in what they do, no rest in even fighting against darkness, as we'll see next week. But I want to start out this morning by saying that our Christian lives are a mixture of high points and low points, some points in the middle as well. If you've been a Christian for very long, I'm sure you can remember times of great joy, great excitement, very high mountain times in your Christian walk. They may have been something like joy because the Lord showed you something about himself from the text as you were just studying, just one-on-one, you and him, and he showed you something you never saw before, and he used that in your life to make a change that month, that year, or maybe for the rest of your Christian life. And those are big moments. I've had those before too. Some very, very big truths were revealed to you that God used to change you possibly for the rest of your Christian life. I've had those. Maybe another high moment for you was when the Lord possibly did something miraculous in your your life. We don't see very many miracles. They're very rare. Maybe some of you have never seen any miracles. I... Don't know that I've actually seen one with my own eyes either, but I've heard of many people saying things like, this x-ray showed something that the doctor believed was a tumor. And so I came back and I told all of you to pray. This happened in another church that I was at before. Doctor told me to come back in two weeks and we'll check again and then we need to do a biopsy and all these things and went back for that next x-ray And there was nothing on the x-ray. It was gone. Maybe some of you have heard of those things. And that's a high moment in your life, in your Christian life. Or maybe the Lord's done something miraculous in that. Maybe he provided a need that you thought was insurmountable. You just thought, this is going to crush us. We don't have enough funds. We don't have enough whatever to get over this thing. And then God did it. 
Those are high moments in our Christian life, right? They don't happen all the time. They're not a daily occurrence. And it's really a good thing because there's also low moments in our Christian life. What do those look like? Discouragement sometimes, loss, struggle of different kinds. Loss of loved ones especially is, is very hard, especially when it's not when the person is just at a ripe old age and dies peacefully in a bed, but other times of loss when it seems very unexpected. The person was way too young. I just attended a funeral on um, Friday, and it was a friend of mine that I graduated high school with. They found cancer right after Christmas, and he passed away in April, my age. 11-year-old daughter. I got to talk to his mom and dad there. And his, his father said, agreed with me that you know, no parent should have to bury a child. We agreed on that. And those, that that's hard. So there are also those harder, lower times that we would call in our Christian life. We would call those lower valley moments, right? What you'll also remember, though, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, was that the Lord was with you in both the high and the low. And if you're a true Christian, you don't just throw Jesus away in the low times. You don't say, well, this whole Jesus stuff isn't working, because what I understand of Jesus is everything's supposed to be great from now on. Well, Jesus actually said the opposite, didn't he? So in From Mountain to Valley, what we're going to see this morning is that the Lord speaking to the disciples on the way down, back from that wonderful moment, on the way down, and what permeates his conversation is actually suffering, hardship, death. So look at verse 9, because we're going to also see just how there's glory mixed into it all, though. Verse 9 starts out this way. It says, And they were coming down, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, this is interesting. I'll tell you why. Because this is the first time we see Jesus giving this command with a time limit attached to it. He's He's given this command before, not just to the 12, but to even other people. Don't speak of what you've seen. We're going to talk about why that is in just a second, but this is the first time he's ever given it with a time limit attached to it. Don't speak about, what, about this until this happens. Then you can speak about it. Now, once again, he's alluding to the fact that he will die and he will also resurrect. In verse 9, do we have the text up there? If you don't mind, let's... We'll get that text up there in case people didn't bring their Bibles with them. Until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Alluding, again, like I said, to the fact that he will die and he will rise. So the three disciples were not allowed to tell the other nine until after the resurrection. Now, I want you to imagine this, though. Imagine what an encouragement that news probably would have been to the other Nine, at that time, at what time? After Jesus rose from the dead to hear about the glorified Christ by the other nine, especially in the face of upcoming persecution. 
would have been wonderful news, wonderful news for these early Christians, especially at the beginnings of the early church. The truth of glory would help sustain them in suffering. Because, think about this, to know for sure that not only have we seen this Christ die, and now we saw him alive again, because he said, don't tell them until after the resurrection, so they would have seen the resurrected Christ. That's wonderful and glorious enough. But then, to know also, other three disciples come over and they say, listen, we saw something else. We saw something else that we weren't allowed to even tell you all about until after this happened. Let us tell you what happened up there on the mountain that day. Remember when he took all three of us up on the mountain that day? And we came down, sort of acting sheepish, because we couldn't talk about it. Let me tell you what we saw. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became whiter than any man on earth could bleach them. Really, we saw him. So not only is he he risen, yes, but guess what? We saw him glorified. And guys, we're going to get to see that again. We're going to get to see him glorified one day too. I mean, imagine how that would have bolstered their faith. And they would have needed that bolstering. Why? Because they were about to suffer mightily. All the disciples died a martyr's death, except for the apostle John, who died an old man exiled on the island of Patmos. So all of them died gruesome deaths. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus purposefully delayed giving them certain truths. Jesus purposefully delayed giving them certain truths. Do you know sometimes a delayed truth that's given at the right moment carries you through a trial? Sometimes a delayed truth given to you at the right moment is what carries you through a trial, unlike it would have carried you through had you received that same truth years before the trial. That's true. That's true. It's not like the matrix. You don't just get all glorious truth downloaded in your brain when you become a Christian. It is revealed to you little by little. And that's by design. For us, though, how was it revealed to us? Not by word of mouth by one of the capital A apostles, but it's revealed to us through the scriptures. And God can't reveal it to you to get you through what's coming unless you're in the scriptures. So church, please let me encourage you, as one who also feels the struggle to let other things in life Crowd out my Bible time. I feel it too, okay? Your pastor also feels that. Your pastors also struggle with that. So don't think, gosh, Cohen up there, he just doesn't struggle like the rest of us. He's just, he's just, Mr., he's just Mr. Super Saint. And he doesn't get what I'm going through. So therefore, I'm not going to talk to him about what I'm going through because he cannot possibly understand. No, I understand. And I have let good things crowd out the best thing in my life as well. So please, I just want to, as a friend to a friend, as your pastor to the sheep, encourage you, don't make that trade. Don't trade good things for the best thing. What I found for myself, just a little tip that you've heard from dozens of other people too, try to get it in first because the devil will see to it that it never happens otherwise. 
I've had good intentions all day long once. Good intentions. Oh, yeah, I'm going to do that later. Oh, I'm going to do that later. Oh, I'm going to do that later. And then guess what? It's nighttime. I'm sitting in bed completely wiped out. And I'm like, yeah, I definitely can't do it now because I wouldn't be able to give enough energy to it and all these things. But I'll pray. I'll, I'll pray real quick. And I fall asleep through the prayer. None of you have ever done that, have you? The Lord will reveal truth to you when you need it, but you have to be at the source of truth to get the truth. So let me just lovingly encourage you, discipline yourself to be in the word. You're missing out if you don't. You're missing out if you do it. I'm talking to myself as well. So he commanded the 12 not to speak of what they saw until after, until after the resurrection. It's a certain time frame given to this truth revelation. Remember another reason why Jesus didn't want them to speak about this was also because he didn't want anything to happen that would compromise his path to the cross. Just like the Jews tried to make him king at one point in the book of John. It was after the feeding of the 5,000. We don't get this in the other gospels, but John reveals it to us. Listen to John 6, 14 through 15, right after the feeding of the 5,000. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come to the world perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The, G- the Jews were on their way to come and make him king by force, kind of like, hey, whether you like it or not, we're going to pronounce you as king, we're going to start following you, and Jesus said, that's, that's, not, that's not the way it's going to happen. That's not the way the Father wants it to happen. We're not going to do it this way way and Jesus withdrew the father's overarching plan for Jesus was the cross and guess what nothing could or would get in the way of that nothing could nor would get in the way of that and Jesus saw to that that's another reason why I think he said let's not make this news known just So verse 10, verse 10, they obeyed. Verse 10 tells us they actually obeyed this one. So they kept the matter to themselves because there's other people that Jesus says, don't speak about this to anyone. And then the guy says, went out and told everybody. This wasn't one of the 12, it was somebody else that he healed. So they kept the matter to themselves, but they were confused about something, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Now, they were good Jews, okay? They were Jews. The Jews, they know and believed about a resurrection from the dead. That was worked into their theology. It's not strange in the Old Testament. There were people risen from the dead in the Old Testament. But they believed that the big resurrection would happen at the end of the age, on the last day. We know that just because we know what the Jews believe, but then we also get a, get a hint of that's what they believe too because again in John, John eleven twenty three and 24, Jesus goes to Mary. This was the, um, I'm sorry, um, Martha. Remember the two sisters that had the brother Lazarus who died? Well, Jesus is speaking to Martha and they have this conversation in John eleven twenty three 23 and 24, I'm just going to read it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother 
will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So see, the Jews knew that there was going to be a resurrection. They knew it was on the final day, the end of the age. We even get that as a little hint of, of what she believed. And then, of course, he goes on to say, I'm the resurrection and the life. So the confusion here, the confusion here for the three disciples wasn't whether or not the dead can be raised or will be raised, but probably why Jesus would have to be raised. You might say, well, he's already, he's already told them about that. He's already talked about it, Cohen. Just in the last chapter, we talked about that, Cohen. It was just a few sermons ago. He said he was going to die. And, and then Peter said, not so, Lord. Get behind me, Satan. Remember all that? Yes, they would have re- remembered that. But also, remember what, where they'd just been. What did they just see? They saw Christ glorified, bright, shining like the sun, Moses and Elisha appeared to him. They'd just seen that. Is it possible that because of this display of glory and power that they had just seen, that they thought, perhaps, can't you triumph without the cross? Can't there be a a crown for you without a cross, Jesus? Why would you let yourself be killed and have to even rise from the dead? Just do the thing that you just did in front of everybody and no one will touch you. Believe me. Maybe James or John was like, yeah, Peter was so freaked out he couldn't shut up. He was wanting to build booths and things like that. Trust me, it will bewilder everyone. And just do that again. And I'm telling you, no need for this death business. What's this rising from the dead, Jesus? Just flex your muscles and show what you can do. And I'm telling you, we're set. And of course, James and John, they were, they were uh, always kind of like, hey, we're going to sit at your right or your left, right? They could have been thinking that. But we know for sure that because they had just seen Elijah, they just seen him with Jesus on the mountain, that they did have some questions about him in relation to the Messiah's coming. We don't know exactly. We don't know. I'm just sort of speculating about why they may have had these thoughts about what's this rising from the dead mean? The text just doesn't give us a super clear answer, but the speculations could be accurate. The normal person may have been thinking those things, but they did have questions about this. Verse 11, they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Why do the scribes say that Elijah first must come? Remember, they've got Elijah on the mind. They just saw him. Why do they say he must come first? So this shows that they've been listening to the scribes teaching. The Jewish teachers, whom the disciples probably grew up listening to, they did get this part right. They were teaching the scriptures in the synagogue, and praise God for that. Praise God for that. But, of course, they didn't always understand the scriptures correctly or apply them correctly. But they did teach them. That's why Jesus says at one point, the teachers teachers of the law, 
do what they say to do, but don't do what they do. He said, listen, when they're teaching you the scriptures, obey those scriptures, but don't live like they live because they don't obey the scriptures. So what scriptures are we referring to here? Look at Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1, it should be on the screen behind you. Here's the first one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now Malachi wasn't done there. He gives a little bit more about what he's talking about in Malachi chapter 4. Look at this one, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah. So now we don't just get messenger, we get Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus tells them that the teaching they've heard is right. Elijah does come first and restore. But then Jesus has a question for them. And we're going to talk more about Elijah in just a second, but he asked them a question. Look at verse 12. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? If Elijah is to come first and restore all things, which sounds positive and good, right? Restoring all things sounds pretty complete. Sounds pretty good. Restore all things things, then why is it written beforehand in Holy Scripture that the Son of Man must suffer? If this Elijah is going to come and get all things right and ready and good, then why is the Messiah suffering? That's the question Jesus has for them. It's a good question. It also refocuses their attention on what they really need to be thinking about. It doesn't sound very restored though, to me, if they're still suffering and shame being thrown at the Messiah, he uses that word contempt, treated with contempt. You know what it means to treat something with contempt? It means you don't really care about it. You think it's low, it's not worthy. Treating it with contempt shows that you believe it's not worth your time. It's not even that good. It's not, not that important. So Jesus tells them that the teaching they've heard is right. Elijah does come first and restore all things. But what's this suffering business about? Because it doesn't sound very restored, does it? And we know that the Messiah is going to suffer, however. And the Jews should have, these Jews especially, should have remembered that. They should remember some of the prophecies that David gave even in the Psalms. Listen to this one, Psalm 16:10. You all know this one for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that's the place of the dead, or let your holy one see corruption. That is quoted later on in the New Testament as applying to Jesus. Listen to Psalm 22:1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? If you didn't know when Jesus said that on the cross, of course, he meant it, but he was quoting Scripture to fulfill it. 
the Messiah was going to suffer. Listen to Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's what the Jews said at the foot of the cross. He delights in the Lord. What? He saved others. Why can't he save himself? Come down and we'll believe. They almost fulfilled these, almost, word for word, but their attitudes definitely fulfilled it. And then who can forget Isaiah 53? And it's just replete with, I mean, when you read Isaiah 53, you think Isaiah was there at the foot of the cross, seeing what was happening physically and seeing what was happening spiritually. It's like he had both eyes, a physical one and a spiritual one, and he was just seeing it all and he was writing it. It's like he was at the foot of the cross. But it was written 700 years before it happened. The Son of Man will suffer. The Son of Man will be treated with contempt. He will be pierced. He will be killed. He will be buried. And on the third day, rise again. Why? Why? A lot of people I have found, spoke to one just two days ago, can say to me, Jesus died for our sins. When I ask them, what does that mean? Did he have to die? That's when the waters get a little muddy. I don't want them to be muddy for my people. I want my people to be able to go out in the world. And if somebody says, what's it mean Jesus died for our sins? You to be able to say, well, let me tell you, because it's glorious and it's good. Why did Jesus have to suffer? So that sinners who believe in him wouldn't have to. You and I deserve punishment for our sins. We've sinned. He didn't. He was sinless. We are sinful. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, the Bible says. Not his punishment, our punishment. He did nothing wrong. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. Why did he die for our sins? What does that mean? He died to take the punishment that sinners deserve. That's why he has to suffer, not because he earned any of it, not because he deserved any of it, but because you earned it, and because I've earned it, and because you deserve it, and because I deserve it for our sins. And he willingly took it on himself so that we wouldn't have to. And that's the best news you'll ever hear. Ever. And he really died under that punishment. And he really rose. Jesus' path from that mountaintop was now a path down into the valley, and that path would lead him all the way to the cross. All the way to the cross. And nothing would deter him, because it was the Father's will, and he always does what pleases the Father. It was God's will, and God would see it through, through the valley, to its glorious end. This must have been so wonderful for Jesus. Remember, yes, he was God, but he was still in human flesh. Imagine tasting again, very momentarily, the glory that he had been in for all eternity. Tasting it once again, momentarily. Showing them what they needed to see, but probably also encouraging him too. It had to happen. It mainly had to happen for the sake of recorded scripture that we could read for thousands of years, and if the Lord tarries his coming for thousands of more years, your great great, 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 great grandchildren will also read about the transfiguration. Do you realize that? If he tarries, it's coming for 2,000 more years. 
You can be a blessing to your great, 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 great grandchildren. Did you know that? By standing on the truth today and then pouring that truth into your children and grandchildren too. We can be a blessing to people we'll never meet. And these scriptures will continue on. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands how long? Amen. So the Son of Man will suffer. Jesus' path will lead to the cross. The stone the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes, the text says. All right, this glorious path of preparation, however, that John the Baptist was assigned in preparing the way to Jesus, that path of restoring all things that we just read about in preparation for the Messiah, guess what? That path also led into a valley, didn't it? John went from the wide open spaces in the desert preparing the way for the Lord, preaching a baptism of repentance. He went from those wide open desert plains in the wilderness to a very confined prison where he was then beheaded. And it was because he followed the Lord. His path of obedience in preparing the way for the Lord led him to suffer Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. We know he's speaking of John the Baptist because in Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15, it says, for all the prophets of the law have prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, this is Jesus speaking, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. He did prepare the way. He did restore all things for my first coming. And he made the way straight and made the way ready. But it's interesting that it says, and they did to him whatever they pleased. And then he adds this, as it is written of him. As it's written of him, yes, these evil people did to John whatever they pleased, the evil people being Herod and Herodias, his wife. As it is written of him, listen to what R.C. Sproul said about that. He said, just as Elijah, Elijah suffered at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, just as Elijah suffered at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, 1 Kings 19, so John suffered at the hands of Herod and Herodias. I think also Jesus is making a connection for them. How? If John, the forerunner of the Messiah, suffered this way, is it surprising that the Messiah himself would suffer as well? If John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, suffered, is it so surprising that the Messiah himself would suffer, especially since it was prophesied about him that he would suffer? Evil people did exactly what they wanted to do to John, but it perfectly fulfilled God's plan. Because each time Jesus says, first about his own sufferings, then about John's sufferings, both times, I don't know if you picked up on this, but he says, as it's written. 
as it's written. So guys, listen to this. These sufferings were not only planned by God, they were pre-recorded by God. Pre-recorded that these things would happen. Not just pre-planned, but pre-written. And I don't think any of us would say John the Baptist or Jesus were robots. No, they had wills, they did what they wanted to, and in doing that, they perfectly fulfilled what God had written about them hundreds of years before. Not being robots, though. And what was written about them, even in their sufferings, perfectly went as planned as well, even though those evil men did exactly what their evil hearts wanted to do. I've said this before. When Satan and man do their worst, they're only fulfilling God's best. When Satan and man do their worst, they're only fulfilling God's best. God had it all planned out before. And that should be very encouraging to you. That should be very encouraging to you because God just doesn't stop with the planning for people 2,000 years ago. What he planned for John the Baptist, what he planned for the Messiah. Those hard roads, those sufferings were planned. And on the other side of them is great glory. That should be encouraging to you. Very encouraging, knowing that anything you're going through, anything you're going through, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether Christian or non-Christian, is a part of the overarching plan for all of humanity designed by God's sovereignty. But here's where it differs for the Christian. Anything that you're going through as a Christian, not only was it planned and it's part of God's overarching sovereign plan for human history, but it's also planned for your good. It's what we're told in scriptures. It's also planned for your good. And you might say, I do not see how God could bring anything good out of this. Or aren't you glad God can? He can. He can see it. And he said, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. How many things? All things. All. Capital A. Capital L. Capital L. All. All. That's good news. Listen to what Paul says about his own suffering, though. Listen to what Paul says about suffering in this life and anyone. Really. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Talking about suffering. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Oh, I think I forgot to tell my guy back here that I, I'm quoting the NIV. I bet the ESV is a little different. Bear with me. 18, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He says light momentary troubles, light momentary afflictions are achieving for us an eternal glory. I've never, first of all, I have a, I have a high regard for for firefighters. I think they're really great people. Um, I think what they do is amazing. But I've never been in a fire 
and been rescued by one of them. I like firefighters right now, okay? I like them a lot. I really look up to them. But I'm going to tell you something right now. If I was in a burning building and the flames were licking at my clothing and my skin and hurting me, and all of a sudden this big guy and all this equipment broke through a window or a wall and grabbed me up and threw me over his shoulder and carried me down a ladder and saved my life, guess what? My love for firefighters, especially that one, would go up just a little bit. Just a little. But why did it go up? Because I was dying, suffering, and he saved me. I would not have loved him. I mean, I'm going to tell you, okay? I would never miss that firefighter's birthday. And I'm telling you, I would go for broke for his presence. I'd call his wife and be like, now what does he really, really want, though? Like, really want that he would never buy for himself. That's what I'm going to get him. I'd never miss a birthday. I'd invite him on family vacations. Okay? I would. And we have rules, like, in our van... No one eats in the van. We just don't, they get, we don't want crumbs in there. If he was in our van and opened up a whole loaf of bread and just got crumbs everywhere, I'd be like, I don't even care. Here's more bread. I wouldn't care. You know why? Because I would love that man. But would I, would I have loved him that much, though, had I had not been in peril? No. Wouldn't really know who he was. Would have almost no affection for him. The fact that I suffered and he rescued me increased my love for him. Increased my relationship with him. Made it tighter than almost any relationship on earth would have been among friends. You who are going through suffering know this. There is greater glory for you on the other side. There's greater love for you because you went through it. John the Baptist suffered, as it is written, to prepare the way for the Messiah. Jesus suffer, suffered in making the way as the Messiah. And guess what, Christian? You're going to suffer walking in that way. Okay? It's part of it. The forerunner suffered. Messiah suffered. You're going to suffer as well. But there is glory on the other side. Greater glory. Greater glory. And the glory will shine more brightly, I believe, the more you've gone through with Jesus. The more you realize he's rescued you out of and the more he brings you out of daily, you love him more. And that's the truth. He's not going to waste any of this. He's not going to waste any of this. Paul said, for our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. It's achievements in your suffering, okay? It's not wasted. The Lord never wasted. So, yes, our mountains, their valleys, and Jesus prepares us for all of it. And Jesus is with us through all of it. Jesus has made the way for all of it. He'll walk with us in the way through all of it. Amen? That should be encouraging to you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that it is written. 
everything that comes to pass. If it's not recorded in Scripture, it's recorded in, in your mind. And it's recorded in your plans for us. Lord, we know that the Messiah suffered to accomplish all that he achieved for us. And we are so thankful for that. Thank you for salvation in Christ through faith and repentance. And now we need your help, Lord, as we walk through this earth. We're going to suffer, especially as we walk in obedience to you. Especially. But you're no stranger to that. You know what those valleys feel like. You've gone through it. And you'll help us, Lord, and ours as well. We love you very much. And we thank you even for delayed, delayed truths, delayed resurrections. I mean, uh, revelations, Lord, delayed revelations of truth that come just at the right time for us. But help us to be digging and looking for them, please. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.